Well, good morning. My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. It's good to have all of you here. Hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving celebration this past week, however you did that. You might have had the traditional three F's of Thanksgiving, food, football, and 50% off at some doorbuster sale. Whatever you did, however you celebrated, we're glad you're here today. And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're looking at the Gospel of John in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11 today. If you have a tablet or you have your phone out, I'm going to assume you're looking at your version app and not texting. So follow along. Thanksgiving has developed somewhat kind of sadly, I think, a reputation as kind of just a warm-up holiday for a big Christmas season. It's viewed as being pretty tame. And maybe that's because if we dig really deep, we recognize that we're supposed to be thankful in all things. We're supposed to always give thanks. And so taking just one day to kind of highlight the fact that we don't do that very well is too sobering. So instead, we just think about it as a warm-up holiday. It's kind of become warm and fuzzy. It's about food and football and fun, all those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. Something Pastor Danny said in our Monday morning prayer meeting this past week really resonated with me. He said, Thanksgiving is that one holiday where everyone prays before the meal. I don't think I can speak for everyone, but I kind of get where he was going. You know, certainly not everyone accepts the notion of celebrating Christ's resurrection at Easter. Not everybody is on board with Christmas being a celebration of Christ's birth, but it seems like everybody wants to say a prayer before the Thanksgiving meal. And it's kind of that idea of, hey, let's invite Jesus because we want to have this big party and we want it to be great. Let's invite Jesus because he might augment it somehow, make it even better, the stuff that we've already planned. Now look, I I don't see hearts the way Jesus does. I, I can't honestly know what motivates that notion of just inviting Jesus to the feast. But I think I've observed something like this in the past. Maybe you have too. It's that notion of just wanting to have God along for the ride. You know, where God kind of comes along and he endorses our activities. When we get done, we want him to put his godly stamp of approval on it, but we really don't want him to help out in the planning stages. We like to take care of that ourselves. It's not a theology we'd get at all from studying the Bible, but it's that idea we have when we think, well, Jesus makes things nice. Jesus makes me a nice person. Jesus wants my kids to do well in school, and he he wants us to be well-liked and good citizens and good neighbors and All those kind of things. And we get this idea that, well, Jesus, he doesn't make any waves. He's just along for the ride. So let's invite him to our Thanksgiving feast. The reality is, I can't for a moment imagine that's what Jesus had in mind when he called the first disciples, or even when he calls Christ followers today to follow him. In a book called The Astonished Heart, an author named Robert Capon writes this, the issue in modern culture is not orthodoxy, versus unorthodoxy, or morality versus immorality. He said the issue is between dullness and astonishment. His premise is we're we're no longer astonished by Jesus. He goes on to say it's not that we've just suddenly become sinful, it's that we've become dull. We haven't all of a sudden become liberal, we've just become boring. We haven't become heretics, we've become nice. We haven't become morally reprehensible, We've just become culturally compatible. And he finishes by writing this, and it hurts. (laughs) We haven't rejected Jesus. We've tamed him. Is that our picture of Jesus sometimes? He's tame. I want to show you a clip from an NBA basketball game. I'm a basketball fan, not a huge NBA fan. And I didn't see this game. And so when you go back and look at the clip, it's really kind of disturbing to watch. The the player, Meta World Peace, does something that is reprehensible. There's no Christ-like action in it whatsoever. 
But, but I want, want you to see it because when I listened to it on the radio, something stuck with me, and, and I think I'll be able to make a little analogy out of it. So let me show you this clip from this basketball game. Blocked by Bynum. Bynum's third in the NBA in shot blocking. Artest drives and finishes. And the Laker crowd fired up and a shot as Harden goes down. And our uh, world peace elbowed him. Oh, no. Ron Artest squaring off with Serge Ibaka. Or world, world peace, I should say, but it made reminiscent of Ron Artest. And I don't know if it was inadvertent or not, but he hit him with an incredible elbow to the head. Because I think even the Laker fans, if they saw the replay, would fully understand. And so again, I'm telling you, I didn't see the game live. But as I was driving in my car, what I heard legendary NBA coach and announcer Dr. Jack Ramsey say was this. Ooh, world peace just leveled James Harden. And that contrast really stuck with me. Because that doesn't sound like something world peace is supposed to do. (laughs) World peace is supposed to be all warm and fuzzy. And instead, world peace takes a guy out. Now hear me on this. Jesus is not throwing elbows to prove a point. But sometimes... I think if we really pay attention, he does something radically different. Something unwarm and fuzzy to get our attention. Something unexpected or something chaotic maybe to move us towards transformation in our lives. And so this hit me hard this week as we all celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday. Did we invite the tame Jesus to our party so he'd make it a little nicer? Were we hoping he'd enhance the festivities just a little bit? And if we did then what I want to share today is I don't think that's the kind of invite that Jesus is looking for. I remember when God really drove this point home to me several years ago when I was on Young Life staff. I read a little book. It was just a really a little pamphlet by a guy named Robert Boyd Munger. And it was called My Heart, Christ's Home. And in it, he uses this analogy of our, our body being a house and where we invite Jesus in. And in the story, he has a guy, you know, have Jesus over for dinner and he lets Jesus hang out in the dining room and they have a nice conversation, but then they want to go over to the living room, and he's like, oh, no, no, Jesus, you stay here. You can't come to the living room. That's where we have really serious discussion. And eventually he lets Jesus into the living room, and then they have a nice discussion in the living room, but then he wants to go to bed, and Jesus goes, well, I'll come with you. He's like, oh, no, 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 Jesus, in the bedroom, that's private. You can't come into the bedroom. And he does this throughout his entire house until he finally kind of yields more and more areas of the house to Jesus until there's only one spot left, one place where he won't let Jesus go, and it's a little attic in his heart. And that's where he keeps the really valuable stuff, our our dirtiest secrets, the stuff we don't want anybody to know. And finally, in this book, Jesus confronts him, and he explains, I can't just be a guest at your house and have the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have. I have to have access to everything. I met with a couple last week who joined the chapel, and, and it was so sweet, they shared their testimony And this young lady shared how God had really called her into a relationship with himself. And he'd used the song, I Surrender All. And she understood, that's it, I've got to surrender all. I have to give everything to him. Jesus doesn't want to just be a guest at our house. (laughs) He needs to live in our hearts. And here's the deal. If we let Jesus build the house, it may not be the mansion that we're thinking of. But even if it's a shack, (laughs) if Jesus builds it, That's where the abundance will be. And so it hit me at Thanksgiving, and it led me to this passage in John. 
Because we have. We've made it the tamest of holidays. Unless you do go out and try and score a 50-inch TV for $188, and then you are throwing elbows to get there. We've made it very tame. In this passage, Jesus turns water into wine, and sometimes I think we gloss over it. I think we look at this passage and go, wow, isn't that a, a warm, fuzzy kind of miracle? Isn't that nice? That's cute. Jesus is just warming up because later he's going to raise some people from the dead. But here, he's just kind of helping somebody out in a tough situation. Jesus is so helpful. Look, we invited him, and he made the party better. But I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think this passage is where we get introduced to the idea that inviting Jesus to the feast could turn the whole thing upside down. He could level the feast. So if you're wanting to have one of those you know, Norman Rockwell painting type of holiday gatherings, if you want some kind of warm, fuzzy, Hallmark movie type of gathering, then you better be careful inviting Jesus to the feast. Because for our own good, so we can be transformed, so we can have abundance in our life, he might totally change the plans. And I think that's what happens here in John 2. The scene is a wedding in a village near Nazareth. And back in the day, weddings were huge deals. I mean, there was a party that would take place for like a week after the actual ceremony. It had a lot of the elements we think of for Thanksgiving with food and family. Probably no football. Follow along in John chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So it seems like from the context, maybe Mary was part of the wedding arrangements. Or maybe she was just really observant and outspoken. It doesn't matter. There's a problem. And she knows where to go when there's a problem. And this would have been a really embarrassing situation for the folks who planned the celebration. And so I read it, and right away I start thinking, hey, shouldn't they just plan better? You know, man, how'd they run out? And, and I guess we could go straight to God's sovereignty and say, okay, well, they had to run out so Jesus could step up at this moment. But I think there's something really neat in the verse. If you look in verse 2, it says Jesus and the disciples were invited to the wedding. So maybe it was their fault they ran out of wine. Maybe the head waiter didn't realize how many disciples Jesus had. And maybe they didn't plan accordingly. But for whatever reason, inviting Jesus and his buddies to the wedding actually caused maybe this wine shortage problem. I want us to think about that because that's a hard truth to think about sometimes. But it's true. Inviting Jesus into our lives will cause some problems. It can cause conflicts. It can cause unpredictability. It may cause big, huge, sweeping changes in our life. But it should. <laughs> Inviting Jesus in should challenge the way we've always done things. Back when I was on Young Life staff, and still to this day, when I get the opportunity to train somebody in how to share the gospel, the very first thing I say, I just warn them, hey, I don't want to ever hear you tell somebody, hey, just accept Jesus and your life will be better. Because that's something I think we want to run to, but the fact is it's not scriptural. That's not what God wants for us. He doesn't just want to make the party better. He doesn't just want warm and fuzzy moments. What he wants is abundance and transformation. He wants the very, very best for us. He doesn't just want to, hey, let me give you what you think you want so your life will seem better moment. In the Bible, Jesus does some amazing things. He's the guy who says to Nicodemus, just one chapter later in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus doesn't get the idea of being born again, Jesus says, are you Israel's teacher and you don't get this? One chapter after that in John 4, he meets the woman at the well. And he says to her, hey, I'd like to meet your husband. Well, he knows she's had five husbands. 
he says to the rich young ruler, sell all your stuff. He calls a Canaanite woman a dog in Matthew chapter 15. He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and lots of other unflattering things. He turns over the tables in the temple. Right after Peter's greatest moment, his strong confession of who Christ is in Matthew 16, right after that, Jesus calls him Satan because Peter forgets and he puts man's interest in front of God's. Jesus is not all warm and fuzzy. Ever since I invited Jesus into my life and told him to take over the whole house, man, he's messed up my life. But in an incredible way. I, I used to work at a sporting goods store. I actually enjoyed it a lot before I got called into ministry. A lot of you here at the chapel may not know, I've been married for 16 years, but I was engaged twice to the same girl before I got married to my wife, before I accepted Christ. So I look back at my life and think I could not get to shepherd this local body. I could not have my wife. I could not have my kids. Having those things, having God's call on my life to be a pastor, having my wife and my kids, that, <laughs> they're not here, but I'd say this even if they're here, that's caused some problems. <laughs> that's caused some messiness. But that's the deal. Jesus will go to incredible lengths to make sure our lives are abundant. Now, I'm just blessed because I have the opportunity to see that my life is both abundant and better since I've invited Jesus in. Not everybody gets that chance while we're still alive, but I get it. And so if you think about those things, then you have to ask, are you sure you want to invite Jesus to the feast? I mean, I'm picturing Jesus sitting next to me there Thursday at Thanksgiving going, hey, James, isn't that your fourth helping of sweet potatoes? <laughs> you know, big boy, you better take it easy there. You know, Jesus loves us enough to jump in and say things like that. The quote I read from Barbara Brown Taylor, she shares this. Jesus is not only the one who comforts and rescues, he's the one who challenges and upsets us. Telling the truth so clearly that we will do appalling things to make him shut up. She goes on, she says, in reality, Jesus is both comforter and revolutionary. If we want a miracle, to experience and live within the miracle that Jesus offers us here, then we have to be willing to accept the chaos he may bring when we invite him into our lives. So here's the truth. Jesus loves us. I think we get that. He loves us exactly who we are. He loves us exactly where we are. But here's where Jesus is a much, much better father than I am. He loves us so much he's not willing to leave us there. There's a great picture of this just a few chapters over in John 8. and We won't have time to look at it all of it today. But in the scene, the scribes and the Pharisees try to trap Jesus. And so they bring this woman who's caught in adultery. And if you read the passage, you read it later, you'll just be in awe. You end up astonished at what Jesus does because he diffuses the situation so easily, but we don't get to know. It says he bent down and he wrote something in the dirt, but it's not something we're supposed to know yet, what he wrote. But anyway, he takes care of that situation so easily, and then all that's left is the woman. And this is where the Bible is funny, if you read it. John chapter 8, verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Like this is a big surprise for Jesus. He didn't realize that everybody was going to run away. He knows exactly what's going on. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. But that's not the end. Because then he says, from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus saves her life, literally. He says, hey, I love you so much, I'm willing to get you out of this setup. I'm willing to bail you out 
and forgive you the poor choices you made. But here's the deal. You need to stop doing it. Jesus ever spoken into your life that way? I know he's spoken into mine that way, and it hurts sometimes. But that's where the real life is. So you go back to our text, and we get this exchange between Jesus and Mary in verses 4 and 5, John chapter 2. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? The running out of wine problem. He says, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And now there's a lot going on here. And it may not seem like a lot when you look at the text. But somewhere in here, there's a conversation. God has like a conference call with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the members of the Trinity get together and God says, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Your hour hasn't come yet. I hadn't told you, but it's here. Now's the time. You're supposed to do something. We know this because in John chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, this is what we hear Jesus saying. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Mary presents a problem to Jesus, and she doesn't say, hey, tell me what you think you're going to do. She doesn't say, hey, give me a few options. What do you think? Or even tell me what you are going to do. She just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so here's what Jesus does. His hour has come. Now there were six Stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, the servants, fill these water pots with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Lots of Jewish symbolism here, but lots of intentionality in this passage for sure. And first let's deal with the water. They, they would have had these big, huge ceremonial water pots. I've got six of them. I couldn't find stone water pots. I have barrels up here. But they had these, these water pots. Did you have one of these by the door wherever you went for your Thanksgiving feast? We don't have these anymore. But back in Jesus' day, these would have been customarily at the door, and they were used for two purposes. And one was the symbolic act of cleansing from sin. And the other was if you truly were dirty, filthy from your travels, you could clean up before you went in. So everybody hearing this story in the first century would have understood the significance of these pots. They were there so you didn't contaminate somebody's house when you went in, either by being ceremonially unclean or just dirty. So what Jesus does here in this tiny little miracle, this little warm-up miracle, is he takes the water that's normally used for ceremonial washing and he turns it into wine. And Wine in the Bible always symbolizes either God's blessing or God's wrath. And here it's blessing clearly. And John, through the Holy Spirit, is telling the story that Jesus took that water that used to make people ceremonially clean, and he made it into wine. And we know in Scripture, wine represents the blood of Jesus on the cross. His blood, his blessing for us, which washes us clean forever. Jesus is leveling the party here. Jesus is turning the party upside down because he's saying, water's not going to cut it anymore. (laughs) To really be clean from now on, you're going to need wine. And you're going to need the wine that I give you. The wine that symbolically represents Jesus' blood spilled for you and me. It's the blood of the new covenant. See, that's big. That's not a warm-up miracle. And then Jesus says, okay, take some of that to the head waiter. And the head waiter would have been the guy who would have been seen as being in charge of this event. He would have been like the event planner in our day. And I think Jesus is trying to show, not in a humiliating way at all, you know, but just in a I, I make things better in a big picture way, 
I have your best interests at heart. He's saying, you might think, Mr. Event Planner, Mr. Headwaiter, that you're in charge of the feast, but really, I need to be in charge. We need to make Jesus the event planner. We need to make him the master of the feast in our lives. Do you see why we sometimes think twice about inviting Jesus to the feast? We may think we have everything all planned out, and then at the last minute, Jesus would change the menu or change the guest list or do something like that. Now, if we do this practically, if we invite Jesus, the real Jesus, to our feasts, then we have to ask, what are the most practical, what are the most tangible ways we'll see that in our lives? And I know for me it's kind of two things. Since I began a relationship with God by grace through faith in His Son 18 years ago, the areas in my life where I see it are in my relationships and in my disciplines. Those are the things that I can see that I invited Christ in. When people come and ask me even today, hey, Pastor James, how do I grow? How do I grow in my relationship with the Lord? They're, they're asking about sanctification and that process of becoming more Christ-like. I always go back to these two things. And I ask them about their relationships first. And obviously, first and foremost, I say, hey, tell me about your relationship with God. Are you abiding with God? And a lot of times, we may, we may never get past that. We just sit and explore that because we could forever. But if we get past that, then I ask about their other relationships. I say, hey, if you're married... Tell me about your relationship with your spouse. If you're a parent, tell me how you're doing with your kids. Tell me how you're doing with your workplace relationships. Do you have a place where you are praying and going out and intentionally trying to interact with the lost world? How are your relationships in your small group? Do you have a small group? Ask those kind of questions because those are telling. Those are really, really good questions. Now, it's true, seriously, that the most important relationship we'll ever have is with God. But if we look at it, it's kind of funny, I think, because we're fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. We're uniquely created to be in relationships. And so believe it or not, it's not enough just to have a close relationship with God. The greatest commandment we get, it says, love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationships are the key here because that's where we get to practice. That's where we get to see if we've truly made Jesus the master of the feast. In this series we're in, it's where we get to see if we're putting feet to our faith. Or do we just want God around to say the prayer at Thanksgiving, make sure the weather's nice. When you read through the creation account in Genesis, over and over again it says God created stuff. You understand, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, but God created stuff, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was a day, and it was good. Over and over it was good. Do you know the first thing in the Bible that wasn't good? It's in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. See, Adam was abiding with God, and Adam had a job to do. There was stuff going on, and God said, mm, it's not good. See, God exists in a way that we can't truly grasp in relationship. He exists in the Trinity. It's how Jesus was able to check in and know that he was supposed to do the miracle at the wedding in Cana. God exists in relationship, and we're supposed to be in relationship. So if we want a good gauge of how we're doing in our process of sanctification, that's a great thing to really look at. We're developing our relationships. And I think then we have to look at our practices or our disciplines. What are we engaging in or doing, or what are we abstaining from or not doing? Not to earn God's favor, not as some form of payment, 
but to help us grow, to know him more, to love him more. There are disciplines of abstinence, and those are things we can stay away from, or certainly things that to some degree we would lessen because they inhibit our growth. Disciplines like fasting, and that's whether you fast from food or you fast from something you've made an idol in your life. And a lot of the mentoring and discipling relationships I have right now with guys, I'm having them fast from their smartphones because that's just something that causes way too much trouble. <laughs> There's stuff you can access you don't need to be seeing, and, and we, they've made it idols. We're on it all the time. I, I myself am guilty. I challenged a guy the other day, and I know, fellas, this seems so wrong. I challenged him to stay away from watching football. Doesn't that seem bad? I like football. If my Cleveland Browns were ever on a station that I actually got, I'd watch them play. But, but the guy I challenged was unplugging from his family from like noon on Saturday when the first college game, on, game came on, and then he'd, he'd unplug all the way through to the last game was over Sunday night. I had to challenge him. Hey, you've made that an idol. I'm not saying watching a football game is bad. I'm saying you can't unplug from your family for the entire weekend to do it. Disciplines of abstinence. And then there are disciplines of engagement. And those are things we can do. Activities and practices that we'd be involved with that would nurture our growth. Serving, studying, praying. See, there are disciplines that I do that I really enjoy. And a lot of times I don't immediately see results from those. Because I really, I really, really like those. But it's funny, there are disciplines that I don't do so well. And when I actually engage in those, almost immediately I can see God causing some growth in my life. We just moved into a new house a few weeks ago, and our yard backs up to Kiwanis Park. And everybody that I talk to is like, oh, man, I see deer over there all the time. Oh, there's tons of deer over there in your house. As a matter of fact, there's a guy in the body, I won't name him, but you know who you are. And he came to me when deer season started, and he's like, hey, can I hunt there in your backyard? I, was, I don't think that's allowed. And he's like, oh, but you got that nice tree stand right there. I said, that's a deck. What are you doing? You can't hunt from my backyard so anyway every morning we've been at the house I wake up and, and I let my little dog out and I stand there in the back window and I look for those deer five weeks nothing and then something strange happened last week my little dog Gunner had to have some surgery and so Gunner wasn't there he was at the vet and so he couldn't go out and so I woke up and I looked out the window and I figured it out Gunner is chasing away my deer <laughs> because that day there's a beautiful doe standing right there on the tree line I bet I sat there for like 20 or 30 minutes just watching that deer. It was so quiet and so peaceful. And I thought about God creating all the animals on the sixth day. And I thought about Adam naming all the animals. And I thought about my little dog, Gunner, who brings our family so much joy. I only took three shots at the deer. Didn't shoot at the deer at all. I just sat and watched it. And it was such a great, great start to my day. The, the discipline of silence and solitude that's not one that I'm really good at. Personally, I like being with people. And so I like developing relationships. And so God said, hey, slow down. Spend some time in silence. If we want to grow, I think we have to seriously evaluate our relationships and our disciplines. Because that'll show if we're letting Jesus be the master of the feast or not. It'll really show if we're putting feet to our faith. And if we look at those things and we don't feel like we're in the right spot, then we can discern. We can have a little test to see what we need to do. If we really feel like our relationships are pretty good, we feel like our relationship with God is good and our relationship with our neighbors is good, but we're not engaged in any disciplines, we're not plugged into some kind of mission, then I guarantee we'll start to feel restless, like there's something we need to do. But the opposite can be true. We can really be plugged into our disciplines, 
to the point where we're on the verge of being legalistic and our relationships aren't good at all and we'll just start to feel worn down. And so we could end up in either one of those extremes. And you start, start to ask, well, what does that have to do with the Thanksgiving feast? And I think it has everything to do depending on which Jesus we invite to the party. See, if we only want the tame Jesus, then we'll get a nice dinner, maybe a good nap in front of the football game on TV. But we'll also keep the old system of purification. Whatever we've been working with, that's all we're going to get. Big water pots by the front door. But if we invite the real Jesus, if we invite the transformational Jesus who loves us so much that he's unwilling to leave us where we are, then what we will get is a feast that will stir our souls. It will be a feast that cleans us from the inside out, not just the outside only. See, Jesus changing the water into wine at that wedding is the miracle that invites us into new life with him. Verse 9, back in John 2. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom over. He said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you, you've kept the good wine till now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I don't for a second believe this was an unintentional miracle. I can't buy the idea this was Jesus just warming up for bigger miracles to come. I think this is Jesus showing who the master of the feast is. This is God showing that the new covenant levels the old covenant, far exceeds it. See, under the old covenant that God established with his people, he required obedience, the Mosaic law. He required sacrifice. That was a covenant that was written on stone. But under the new covenant, God's people no longer have to pay the penalty for sin themselves because Jesus did it for us. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sin, for the sin of the world. Under this new covenant, we can receive salvation freely by grace through faith. This new covenant isn't written on stone. It's written on our hearts. John is showing in this passage that the good wine that the head waiter mentions, that's God's transformed wine of grace. It's wine that cleans us from the inside out, not just the outside alone. And there's plenty to go around. We'll never run out. Read several commentaries, and they say Jesus probably turned about 160 gallons of water into wine. I think that's great, but I don't think knowing the exact number is important at all. I think what we're supposed to realize is it's enough. <laughs> it's not going to run out. God's grace is abundant and sufficient, and it transforms things. Transforms things from the tame events that we can dream up to these incredible things that only God can dream up in our lives. I think we have to remember transformation is a process. If we're Christ followers, then truly we're in that process of becoming more and more Christ-like. And to really grow, we'll have to allow Jesus to be the master of the feast. We'll have to have him living in our lives, he has to have access to everything. And then we have to work at our relationships. And we have to engage in disciplines. As far as where to start on that, I think there's actually something telling in the text. See, when Mary discovered the problem at the wedding, they have no more wine, she didn't propose a few solutions and let Jesus pick from one. She trusted him with the solution. So where do we start? Where's the application in our lives? 
thinking, let's pray. Let's pray and examine our hearts and then be observant like Mary was. Maybe we can start with one thing. Just one place in our lives where we need healing or restoration or forgiveness. We don't have to try and fix everything all at once. But just pick one thing and take it to God and say, here's a problem. Here's a problem, and I know that you can guide us on the path of a solution. We examine our hearts, ask, what fear, what hurt, what wound, what longing in our life would require the miracle of Jesus leveling the playing field, turning water into wine? What do you think? Can we do that part? Just bring the problem to Jesus and trust him that he's got our very, very best interest at heart? Or will we just trust in the old system? Think twice about even inviting Jesus to be the master of the feast. We have this incredible opportunity today to practice the biblical ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Certainly it's the Lord's Supper. It's not Cape Bible Chapel Supper. So everyone's free to partake. And we have it set up on the tables in the front. And in a minute, Ryan's going to come. He's going to play some music. And we'll have that chance to examine our hearts to bring our problem to Jesus and ask him for the solution to whatever situation we're facing. If there are folks around you, you know it would be difficult for them to get up and serve. What, what a great opportunity for you to serve them. Maybe take communion to them. I want to read one more verse out of Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. And here's where Jesus explains the new covenant to the disciples. This is what he shares. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Daddy, we're just in awe over you. I want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you for loving us so much that you are unwilling to leave us where we are. God, as we think about how we celebrated Thanksgiving, are you challenging us? Did, did we make you the master of the feast? Or do we want you just to come along and make our party a little bit better? God, as we examine our hearts, we confess. Help us to figure out what's the one thing, what's the problem that we can bring to you, and then watch you do miracles. God, thank you for this time to worship you today, to be with you, to abide in you. Help us to leave changed. We just love you, Lord. We ask all that in Jesus' name.